Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. If you're like me, it's now the end of the day, and you say, "Uh uh-oh, what are we going to have for dinner? Well, here's the solution. Eating better is easy with Factors Delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You're going to have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Flexible for your schedule, get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries at any time. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive then take out, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash smirconish50 and use code smirconish50 because you'll get 50% off. That's code smirconish50 at factormeals.com slash smirconish50. Get your 50% off. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to Book Club with Michael Smirkanish. Hi, it's Michael Smirkanish. As a Sirius XM and CNN host, I'm known for speaking, but frankly, I read for a living. I need to know what to say, and so I consume over two dozen newspapers and websites daily. I read opposing views and studies and court cases and orders and op-eds just so I can discuss current events on radio and television. But my favorite reading? Books. Old school. And my favorite interviews? are with book authors. Book Club with Michael Smirconish is now in session. Gary Ginsburg is a media executive who has written a book on a subject that I know will interest the POTUS audience. It is called First Friends, and it is just that. It's a book about best friends of American presidents. Gary, thanks so much for being here. I really enjoyed the book. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I think the the biggest surprise to me is that this turf was left to you, to mine. I, I can't believe that previously no one took the approach that you did. Yeah, I was surprised myself, Michael. Um, I have been really kind of focused on the, the notion of this first friend and the role he or she can play for a long time. I worked on the Gary Hart campaign in 1984, and I first saw the role of a first friend in Warren Beatty. And I saw it again in 1992 with Vernon Jordan. And then I started thinking about it in the context of the Trump administration and the lack of a first friend. So 
I went to look at presidential literature. And as you say, I, I thought there'd be books uh, on the first friends of presidents. There have been books on first friends, a couple of them, but the literature is really devoid of a book about first friends and the role that they have played in the shaping of the man in the presidency. So I decided to fill it. With you, this book. you do not argue. You do not argue that a best friend is essential to success, but it seems like there's a correlation of sorts. Yeah, I think there is. I, I think that you cannot argue that you need a best friend to succeed in the presidency. History doesn't show it, and I couldn't argue it. But what I did find is that those presidents who did have a first friendship were generally the better for it, and so was our country. And hopefully my book shows that. So what you've done is you've tracked nine of these relationships. And I, I, I was going to go there at the end. I may as well go there at the beginning. Oh, how I wish that Donald Trump had been included in this book, because I don't think him if, if, if he has, it hasn't been reported. He's surrounded by a lot of people. But I sense that he's devoid of having that childhood friendship, that person who has remained at his side and vice versa. That's right. And I, too, wanted to do a chapter on Donald Trump. I was writing it during the Trump presidency, and I thought how perfect to get a chapter about our sitting president. I spoke to somebody very close to him, uh, went back and forth for a number of months on who that first friend could be. And I offered a couple of ideas based on my own research, and I kept getting put off on it. Finally, I just ran out of time. And I spoke to this person after I had submitted the manuscript. And this person basically said, I was avoiding the conversation because there is no first friend, because the president is constitutionally you know, incapable of a first friend, has never had one in his life, and certainly did not have one in the presidency. He had friends around him who he would speak to on a regular basis, like an Ike Perlmutter, the head of Marvel. But in terms of having somebody whom he could confide in, he could bear his soul and hear the hard truth from, he didn't have that person. And, I, and let me just give you one anecdote to kind of punctuate that point. My, this person told me that when they would go to Camp David, friends and family for weekends, instead of relaxing with his friends, he would sit in, he'd sit in the cabin by himself and essentially call around to supporters around the country for affirmation. And what I concluded was his first friend was really that amorphous mass of the base that gave him that emotional security and support that he so desperately needed. So, uh, you know, the Twitter feed for lieu of a better way to shorthand it really, I think, became his first friend. Yeah, that that in the flat screen. That wouldn't surprise me yeah. at all. Yeah. For, yeah. for me, the, the most uh, intriguing friendship, again, Gary goes through nine, nine of 46. So plenty of opportunity here for a sequel or two. <laughs> Bibi Rebozo, Bibi Rebozo, Bibi Rebozo. What is the correct pronunciation? Bibi. Bibi. It's Cuban, so, Cuban for baby. Right. So for the benefit of those too young to remember, who is Bibi? Who was Bibi Rebozo? Bibi Rebozo was a very successful real estate slash businessman, real estate speculator businessman from Miami and Fort Lauderdale, who befriended then Senator Richard Nixon in 1950 on a boat that he had been uh, invited onto, Richard Nixon, having just won the Senate seat after beating Helen Douglas. He goes on the boat. And instead of the usual guest being a part of the group, fishing, carousing, drinking, eating, he sat by himself on the deck, basically in long pants and a long shirt, and stayed by himself, looking at his, his notepad. 
And afterward, Bibi Rebozo wrote to their mutual friend who had invited Nixon and said, don't ever have that man back on my boat. He is a bore and a dud. Nixon wrote back to Bibi Rebozo and said, I had the greatest time and I'd hope to see you again. And from that inauspicious start, they forged a friendship for the next 40 years. And was he was Richard Nixon's closest friend and a complete opposite, I should add, in terms of personality, intellect, and interests. But somehow it just worked. And as I show in my, in my chapter, it was both a source of great emotional comfort to Nixon, but also at the end, I think, part of his tragic undoing. Page 285, when Nixon was president, John Dean, Nixon's young White House counsel, remembers being approached by the Secret Service when they became concerned that Rebozo, not their agents, was driving the president around a major breach of protocol. Dean worked out a compromise with Rebozo whereby the Secret Service would always drive the cars. But when it came time to captaining Beebe's Florida houseboat, an agent would sit up top the boat while Beebe took the helm. On his first outing, the agent became concerned after hearing only silence from below for the first hour of the trip. He climbed down, peered into the stateroom to see two men sitting in total silence, both looking out at the sea. The agent continued to watch for the next hour and still heard not a peep. Explain. So um, I called John Dean just out of no, you know, out of uh, just a sense I needed to find somebody who had witnessed that friendship. And he said, I've been waiting for 50 years to tell this story. And the funny <laughs> part about that, the funny part about that is he was so intrigued hearing the report from the Secret Service agent on the boat that he calls the Secret Service agent who was in charge of the detail in San Clemente, where Rebozo and Nixon would take long walks on the beach. And he says, hey, what do you witness when those two men take those walks? And the Secret Service agent said, it's the damnedest thing. They don't speak. And what I gleaned from my research was that the reason why this friendship worked so well was that they were such opposites. Bibi was an ebullient, hail, you know, fellow kind of guy who loved to, to regale people with anecdotes and quips and jokes and stories. Nixon was a brooding intellect who liked nothing more than to sit by himself, as I recounted from that first boat trip. But Nixon had the self-awareness to know he needed somebody around him, lest he fall deeper and deeper into his own neuroses of his mind. And so he picked a friend who could sit with him in silence, yet break that silence when Nixon needed to be lifted, needed to be a part of the world. And that's what Rebozo's genius was, was being able to read Nixon's moods and know when to bring him out of that deep funk that he was so often in. And to his credit, Nixon resigns, goes to San Clemente. They continue to be friends. And the last time they're together, I, I think it was the Boys Club of Miami sure. Beach or some such thing where Nixon's yeah. coming in for a $250 uh, fundraiser for BB. No, they were genuinely best friends. They spent, I think, 60 weekends together in, uh, during Nixon's presidency. Uh, Pat, you know, I think described BB as a sponge. Uh, Bibi's own wife said, I know where I reside in Bibi's life. I'm third behind Dick Nixon and, and his cat. So I think there was a kind of begrudging acceptance that these two had their own bond that was unique in both of their lives, particularly in the president's. And Gary, not that there would have been anything wrong with it, but you rule that out, right? 
I do. I, I look. I, there was an AP reporter who wrote an explosive book in 2011 suggesting they were gay lovers. Uh, I don't think the evidence that he used to support it is enough to substantiate that claim. It's a great, you know, great uh, suggestion to get headlines, but I don't know if, if there's any truth. William Jefferson Clinton, upon graduating from the Yale Law School, has an ambitious things to do list. And I, I thought very interesting that among his aspirations, he wanted to have good friends. Yes, it was his third life goal that he listed. And it, it begins his memoir, My Life. And I found that fascinating. And I will say that he was very successful in terms of accumulating and keeping great friendships throughout his life. And it's funny because he was the only president that I was able to ask, who is your best friend? And he had a number of people to choose from. And fortunately, he chose Vernon Jordan, uh, whom I was hoping he would because I had witnessed that friendship firsthand during uh, the, the campaign in 1992 and then during the presidency. And, and as you discuss in the book, this was a good reminder. There, there are a lot of friends of Bill and arguably the FOBs saved him. When 600 people took out an ad in the Manchester Union and said, don't believe all the stuff they tell you about our governor. If you want to know him, call us. What's that extraordinary ad that I'm making reference to? So that was in New Hampshire in 1992 in the wake of two scandals that nearly derailed his campaign. One was his deferment from the draft, which he had denied, and then it came to light. And the second was Jennifer Flowers' press conference in New York at the end of January, in which she disclosed audio tapes that revealed a long relationship between the two and then which played a very, very big role in Ken Starr's investigation. Um, And so his campaign was teetering and the campaign brass was trying to figure out how do we save this campaign from imploding? And they came upon the Friends of Bill. 600, as you say, signed that letter. 100 went up to New Hampshire before the primary to knock on doors and leave bags and saying, if you want to know about Bill's, Bill Clinton's character and integrity, ask us. We have lived with this man for 40 years. We know him and we are willing to vouch for him. And Bill Clinton is the only man, and he told this to me in our interview, who can say he was elected president because of his best friends. Quote, she's a very attractive lady. And that was a beautiful dress. It's too bad they ran out of fabric before they finished it. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that was um, the moment when Bill Clinton and Vernon Jordan bonded in 1977 at a fundraiser for the Urban League. And it was a friendship that was based on a lot of shared interests and shared values. And one of those shared interests, obviously, was a love of women. They were both larger than life personalities, good looking men who, you know, were very attractive to the opposite sex. And that became a, you know, a big source of conversation, lighthearted, fun bantering. Obviously, uh, a a woman becomes the center of a controversy slash uh, impeachment that puts Vernon Jordan at the center of a man who was used to being behind the scenes is suddenly thrust into the national spotlight. It very narrowly, very nearly derails their friendship. But it doesn't. They survive it and they go on to remain best friends until Vernon dies this last March. So what did they talk about on the golf course? (laughs) Well, as I write in my book, there are no uh, video. There's no audio of what they said. But, you know, I spoke to enough people who said one of the subjects was women. But I think Bill Clinton was very careful not to talk about his own affairs 
And he essentially told that to me that for two reasons, he didn't talk about it because he was ashamed. And two, he didn't want to implicate his friends. And I think on the question of Monica Lewinsky, did Vernon Jordan knowingly uh, obstruct justice by trying to get her a job? I think the answer is no, because Vernon was too smart to ever ask and Bill Clinton was too smart to ever tell. So uh, you don't have to go there, but I was making a specific reference because you well know and wrote about the fact that Newsweek asked Vernon Jordan, what do you guys talk about out on the golf course? And he had a pretty a pretty startling response. He did. He did. Um, and uh, I had to include it. Um, sure. Yeah. And I think it's probably a pretty accurate description of how they what they'd like to talk about. Listen, I th- Hillary Clinton said to me, what what a, the first friend provides more than anything is respite. And I think for the, the most lonely and difficult job on the planet, presidents need their releases and they need their emotional their emotional uh, releases. And I think for Clinton, it was going on the golf course with Vernon and being able to talk whatever he wanted. And one of those topics was women. Right. And, and look, I think it's I think it's an essential release. I worry that a person in that role, it'll be a woman someday who is constantly on and constantly under the microscope. There's got to be a time when they can they can let their hair down. Uh, I really enjoyed the story that you tell. And I, I want to leave meat on the bone for people to buy the book. The book is called First Friends. But I particularly enjoyed in the Clinton chapter how it's January of 2001. I don't think you had the exact date, nor was it necessary. But these are the last days of the Clinton White House. And he calls Vernon Jordan and Vernon Jordan, you know, can you come over? And Vernon Jordan says, well, I've got dinner plans, but I'll be there by nine. And he ends up going over for his last visit on Bill Clinton's watch for for what, five, six hours. And, And when he pulls out, I think in a convertible, he has to stop his car. Vernon Jordan does because he's in tears, just reflecting on the significance of the moment and their friendship. Yes, he's he um, it's it's a very it's a very meaningful six hours because I what I have learned and I, I referenced it in the book and I've learned since the publication of the book how profound a moment it was. There was real tension in that friendship for the last two years. Clinton is is uh, is not convicted by the Senate in uh, 1998 and or the beginning of 1999. It's now t- 2001. And I don't think that the two of them ever really talked it out. How did right. Bill Clinton put Vernon Jordan in harm's way by asking him to get a job for Monica Lewinsky? I think Clinton felt enormous guilt. And it was in those six hours where they finally bared each other's, they finally bared their souls to each other. And they finally came to an understanding that Clinton did not intend to put him in that harm's way. And at the end of the night, they say their goodbyes at 3.30 in the morning. And as you say, Vernon drives down the driveway and he's reflecting, here I am, the son of a postman, grew up in the first housing project for African-American people. And now I've just spent six and a half hours with the most powerful man on the planet. And he's overcome with emotion. And he turns off the car. He wells up with tears. He rests his head on the steering wheel for a matter of some minutes and then finally turns his car back on and drives out for the last time. Gary, people who listen to a program like mine are going to love your book. It is called First Friends, and I wish you all good things with it. Thank you so much uh, for being here. Thanks for having me. Gary Ginsburg, ladies and gentlemen, the book is terrific. You should check it out. 
Book Club with Michael Smirconish. New episodes drop Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen to the Michael Smirconish program weekdays on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124 and anytime on the SXM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com.